evidence and answers. My friends are Mormons, and I want to share the truth about Christ. But they say they're Christians too. What are the differences in their doctrine, and how can I share truth with them? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In today's episode of Evidence and Answers, we will continue on with a study we started the last time we were together regarding the topic of Mormonism and what their doctrine is regarding Jesus Christ. Now with part two of this fascinating message is Pat Zucran. We have been going through our study on Mormonism this week, and we've been asking the question, are Mormons Christians? Should they be embraced as another Christian denomination? Or are they teaching major doctrines that are contrary to what the Bible teaches? Well, in our previous study, we saw that Mormonism, their theology of God, is very different from the theology of God taught in the Bible. And we also learned yesterday that the Jesus of Mormonism is very different than the Jesus of the Bible. According to biblical teaching, Jesus always existed as the eternal Son of God. There's not a time where he came into existence. He was always in existence. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. At the beginning of all things, even time itself, the Word was already in existence. Mormonism teaches that Jesus has a beginning, that he's the firstborn spirit child to the Heavenly Father and one of his many wives, that Jesus is the spirit child or the offspring of the Heavenly Father and Mother, and so is the rest of mankind and the angels. So we're of the same essence and the same nature as Jesus Christ, and man may attain exaltation unto Godhood as Jesus Christ. So the only difference between Jesus Christ and mankind really is in his achievement, not in his essence or nature. Mormonism also taught that Jesus was not always God, but progressed unto Godhood. And popular Mormon theology teaches that Christ attained Godhood in the pre-existent spirit world. And when it comes to the incarnation, that God the Father appeared in a glorified physical body having sexual relations with Mary to produce the spirit body of Jesus. So those are some of the basic teachings of Mormon theology when it comes to the teaching of the nature of Jesus Christ. And we can see here, they clearly deviate from biblical teachings. Now, there are some defense passages or passages in the Bible Mormons point to in defense of their theology of Jesus Christ. So we'll take a look at a few of those passages right now. The first is John 3.16, where in the King James Version, it states of Jesus, that God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now, Mormonism teaches that word begotten means to be conceived and be born of. Remember, Mormon theology teaches that Christ is the firstborn son, literally the firstborn son of the Heavenly Father and one of his many wives. And so here's a passage that they point to in the King James Version. Only begotten means to be the born of or conceived and born of the Heavenly Father and Mother. Well, 
you need to do a good word study of this word begotten and also study it in its context. The Greek word here, begotten, the Greek word is monogonés, meaning unique or one and only. It doesn't teach procreation that Jesus was born, but that Jesus is the unique or the one and only Son of God. Therefore, the New International Version, the New American Standard, the English Standard Versions, and other translations translate it, For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only, or He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. So, the word begotten there used in the King James, monogonase in the Greek, is not referred to procreation, but it's talking about that Jesus is unique or the only Son of God. That's what it's talking there. Not that Jesus has a beginning, that he was procreated, but he is the one and only unique divine Son of God. Another passage that is used to show that Christ has a beginning, that he was procreated by God the Father and one of his many wives, is Colossians 1.15, where it states, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, Mormon theology teaches that this word firstborn means literally first one procreated, first one born, the eldest son of God the Father and one of his many spirit wives. That's how they take the word firstborn to mean. Now, once again, you need to look at the context and you need to do a study of this term firstborn. Does it mean first one, the eldest son, first one that came out of a mother's womb? Well, in the Bible, throughout the Old and New Testament, this term firstborn is used as the title of preeminence or one of power. For example, when we say of the president and his wife, we call her the first lady. So right now our president is Barack Obama and his wife's Michelle Obama, and she's called the first lady of the United States. Does this mean she's the first woman born in the United States? course not. doesn't mean that she's the first wife of a president of the United States. No, there have been many before her. It's the title of preeminence. It's the title of power. That's how firstborn is being used here. It's a title of preeminence, a title of power. We see this in passages like Psalm 89:27. Now, Psalm 89 is a coronation psalm of King David, and God is talking about the exaltation of King David. And of King David, God says here in verse 27, I will make him, David, the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Well, is David the first king of Israel? No, he is the second king. Well, is he the firstborn son of Jesse? No, if you remember the story, he is the eighth and youngest son of Jesse. How then is David the firstborn? Well, it's a title of preeminence. It's the title of power. He's the greatest of the kings of the earth and it is through his line the Messiah shall come and it is on David's throne that the Messiah shall sit so that's a title of preeminence and of power once again we see that used in a passage like Jeremiah 31 verse 9 remember Joseph had two sons Ephraim and Manasseh Manasseh is the older son but Ephraim would become the greater and so in Jeremiah 31, 9, Ephraim is called the firstborn. 
even though he came after Manasseh. Why is that? Because his tribe would be preeminent. And so this is a title of preeminence and of power. So we see that in the Bible here, the title firstborn can sometimes mean first one who is born, but it also can be used as the title of preeminence and of power. And you look in the book of Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 where that verse is used, firstborn there, in that context, it's the title of preeminence and of power. That is the proper use of the word and the only logical one when you look at the context of Colossians chapter 1 there. It's the title of preeminence and of power there being used of Jesus Christ as it is used elsewhere of a title of preeminence and power in the Old Testament. Another passage that is used by Mormons and especially Jehovah Witnesses is John 14 verse 28 where Jesus said, You have heard me say, I'm going away and I'll come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father for the Father is greater than I. Mormon theology teaches that see, Jesus is procreated by the Father and Jesus is saying here that the Father is greater than I here. That the Father is superior to Jesus Christ. Well, once again, this is a principle of headship and submission. Greater refers to position, not to nature. For example, you would agree with this statement here. If I said, the president is greater than you or I. Well, as the chief executive officer of this nation, he is greater. But if I said, the president is better or a superior being than you or I, well, then you would disagree. We're all human. We're of the same nature. He is greater by position. So this term greater here refers to position, not to nature. Amongst the members of the Trinity, the triune God, there is an economy there. The Father sends the Son. The Son sends the Holy Spirit. Okay, so there is an economy. There's an order of headship and submission established in the Trinity. And that is what is being reflected here when Jesus says the Father is greater than I. He's referring to position, not to nature. If Jesus wanted to say that the Father is a superior being, he would have said the Father is superior to I or the Father is better than I. But he says greater and that's referring to position. For example, Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1 is talking about the supremacy of Christ. And here... The writer of Hebrews is that is saying that Jesus, his first argument, is superior to the angels. He's of a different order. He's of a different essence and nature. Chapter 1, verse 4 says of Jesus Christ, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So Christ is superior to the angels. He is better. He is of a different essence and nature. He is superior to the angels. But here in John 14, verse 28, Jesus is referring to position here. Greater refers to position and not to nature. So Jesus is equal in nature with God the Father. But he willingly, you know, Philippians chapter 2, he willingly submits to the leadership and headship of the Father. So greater here is referring to position and not to nature. 
Another biblical passage that Mormons like to refer to is Psalm 82. Here in Psalm 82 it states, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And verse 6 states, I said you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. So in looking at that particular passage, Mormons will often say, well, you see, there is a plurality of gods. Remember in Mormon theology, many gods exist. There's millions of planets inhabited by gods who were once men who, through their good life, attained exaltation unto godhood, just like the god of this planet, Elohim. And here in this particular passage, Psalm 82, they said, here's a passage that shows that there are many gods, like our God, throughout the universe, and that men may also attain unto Godhood. And Jesus Christ, who is of the same essence and nature as mankind, also attained Godhood here. And here in this passage, it speaks of multiple gods here. Verse 6, I said you are gods, you are all sons of the Most High. Well, what is that passage talking about here? Once again, context is the key. What God is talking about here in Psalm 82, we're talking about judges, specifically corrupt, unjust judges. And they were, in a sense, the sons of God or a God in, in that they were vice regents or spokesmen for God who were supposed to execute God's law. However, these are corrupt judges here, if you look in this particular context. It says here, in verse 1, God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. He holds his judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Verse 6, I said you are gods, you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. So is it talking about men who attained exaltation unto godhood and live eternally as a god? No, he's talking about corrupt judges who are supposed to function as vice regents for God and spokesmen for God. But nevertheless, he rebukes them because of their corruption and their wickedness. And he says, verse 7, Nevertheless, you shall die like mere men and fall like any prince. So in the context here, once again, that is the key. He is not talking about gods who attained eternal exaltation unto God. He's talking about corrupt judges here. You need to look at that particular context here who are supposed to be spokesmen for God. Nevertheless, they were corrupt. And he is speaking out in judgment to them. So that is not a passage that supports that indeed there are many gods who were once men who attained exaltation unto Godhood. So those are some passages that Mormons like to refer to in defense that there are a plurality of gods and that Jesus Christ was procreated, that he's not the eternal Son of God, that he does have a beginning, that he is the oldest or first son born to the heavenly parents. However, a careful study of these passages quickly shows that in no way does it support Mormon theology. In fact, on an interesting note, the Book of Mormon even defends the eternal sonship of Jesus Christ. In the Book of Mormon, in 2 Nephi, it states of Jesus, Behold, I am God. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. I, the Lord your God, have created all men. I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's in chapter 7 of the 
second book of Nephi in the Book of Mormon. But also in the book of Mosiah, chapter 3, it states this, For behold, the time cometh and is not far distant, that with power the Lord omnipotent, who reigneth, who was and is from all eternity to all eternity, shall come down from heaven among the children of men and shall dwell in a tabernacle of clay and shall go forth amongst men, working mighty miracles such as healing the sick, raising the dead, causing the lame to walk, and the blind to receive their sight, and the deaf to hear, and curing all manner of diseases. And he shall be called Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Father of heaven and earth, the Creator of all things from the beginning. And his mother shall be called Mary. That's in chapter 3 of the book of Mosiah. So despite Mormon theology, the book of Mormon contradicts Mormon theology and teaches that Jesus Christ is the eternal divine Son of God. That poses a difficulty for Mormon theologians there. So from our brief study here, we can see that the Jesus of Mormonism is very different from the Jesus of the Bible. And that's absolutely critical because the wrong God, the wrong Jesus, the wrong gospel cannot bring eternal life. As Paul warned us in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 4, there were those teaching another Jesus. And another Jesus would lead to another gospel. And Paul gives us that great warning in Galatians chapter 1 verse 8 where he says, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Those are some powerful words of condemnation to those who would be preaching another Jesus and another gospel. When it comes to the doctrine of Jesus Christ, then I believe theologian Gordon Lewis perhaps sums it up the best. He states, If the Christ of a Mormon is not the one true God who is eternal, the object of worship is a creature, and worship itself becomes idolatry. If the Christ of a Mormon is a spirit child who has been procreated like countless other spirit children by the flesh and bone father and one of his wives, then he is not uniquely of the same nature as the Father, as the Bible and his, the historic church teach. If the Mormon Christ is our finite brother, not different in kind from us, he is therefore not uniquely Emmanuel, God with us. The Christ of the Bible is the unique God-man, incarnate, crucified, and risen once for all. Only if he was infinite God in human flesh, could his blood have infinite value for the justification of all the billions of people who have ever sinned? So when it comes to the Mormon Jesus and the Jesus of the Bible, Mormonism teaches a very different Jesus, which leads to a very different kind of gospel. And so therein lies the danger of the teaching of Mormonism, for it leads to a different God, a different Jesus, and in the end, a different gospel. And the wrong God, the wrong Jesus, cannot lead one unto eternal life. Therefore, it's all the more important Christians become aware of not only what the Bible teaches, but the false teachings of Mormonism, and be able to lead their friend and family member out of Mormonism to the true gospel of the true Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. 
This concludes part two of Pat's study on Mormonism's Doctrine of Jesus. If you found this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. Log on to our website at evidenceandanswers.org. We have a wide variety of resources right there on the site. For the opportunity to donate and keep us on the air, click on that Donate button on the side of our homepage. Join us again next time on the air or online for more evidence and answers.